but rather determined this, not to put a stumbling, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Well, tonight we're going to finish chapter 14, which ought to be a great encouragement to you that someday we might actually finish our study in the book of Romans. All right? (laughs) Only two chapters left, so we're getting closer. We've actually worked our way down to verse 17, which says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're actually in in the process of our study here. We're considering the issue of the church and all of its diversity uh, as Christ has displayed his power and brought a variety of different people together from all different backgrounds that we come from and united us together in this thing called the church with a genuine unity all together. And we're mindful of the fact that our flesh and the enemy of our souls, the devil himself, uh, uh, both of those attempt to work to create division, to threaten the unity that we have. And that's why Paul puts forth this address. And again, he's addressing strong believers, those who are mature in Christ, not to, into, not to enter into conflict with the immature, the weaker brother. We who understand our freedoms in Christ, we are to see our liberties that God has given to us and realize that liberty doesn't mean license. We, we are never to use our liberties as in an abusive manner, but in making sure that we never put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way that might either hinder him or derail him uh, in, in his spiritual growth. Now, when we first began uh, this uh, dive into the series here in, the, in uh, chapter 14, Uh, It's really a section that runs from the top of 14 all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. And and Paul is going to spend 36 verses discussing one issue. I think that's remarkable. 36 issues discussing one issue. And again, that's dangerous to the unity of the body of Christ. Because as as Christians, we're to encourage and accept and support each other uh, when, uh, um, when other people don't believe or act the way we think they should. Uh, if you go back to chapter 12, uh, the top of that chapter through chapter 13, Paul spends 35 verses uh, on the issues of our relationship to God, uh, issues of our mind, thinking rightly about ourselves in the body of Christ, our spiritual gifts, loving each other in the body of Christ, how to interact with those who are not part of the body, how to respond to those who are in authority, how to love our neighbors as ourselves, and proper conduct in the light, again, of the imminent return of Christ. So he spends 35 verses from the top of chapter 12 to chapter 13, verse 14, on nine different topics. But in this last major section here of the book of Romans, he spends 36 verses on the issue, the dangers to the unity in the body of Christ. 36 verses basically stating how we have to live together, how we have to learn to live together in the body of Christ and support each other, rather than tearing down each other or trying to change each other, especially when there's certain issues that are really non-essential issues that we don't agree on, and they often arise in the body of Christ. So you have to ask yourself the question, why in the world would he spend so much time on this? Why would he spend so many verses discussing the need for those in the body of Christ to accept those who they disagree with on less essential matters? I would suggest that he's probably trying to get the attention of the Romans to whom he is writing. And then I would also suggest he's probably trying to get our attention, at least the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention on this issue. Because Paul, I think, wants to leave one final thought in our minds of something that he considers to be tremendously important before he closes the letter and then talks about his future plans and then sends final greetings. 
So when you begin at the top of chapter 14, uh, which is the first part of this last section, it goes through verse 12, and Paul just basically in that section is appealing for us to accept each other in the faith. Accept each other in the faith because God has already accepted us, each one of us in the faith, each one of us before him. If God has accepted us, we need to accept each other. And then he begins to bring forth an illustration of eating meat or not eating meat or observing certain days or not observing certain other days. And the bottom line issue is that we're to receive each other in the Lord no matter what side of these, again, secondary issues we fall on personally. Because, again, God has accepted us all into the body of Christ. So we should also accept each other into the body of Christ. Verses 7 and 8 of that uh, top of that chapter, uh, Paul says we need to evaluate everything we do, whether it's eating or not eating or et cetera and so forth, observing, not observing. Uh, everything we do in life needs to be with the intent of doing it for the Lord. I'm always talking to uh, young guys, and I'm always saying that whatever we do doesn't matter. The motivation really is the issue. Are we doing it for the Lord? That's really needs the motivation of all of our lives. So again, what, what, uh, what Paul is saying, whatever, whatever, whatever we do in life, live or die, we're the Lord's. I mean, he's the king. He's the sovereign over both the weak and the strong in the body. Everything we do has to be with the realization that all of us are going to one day give an account before him. So again, everything we do or don't do should be to his praise, to his glory, to his honor. Uh, that's how we evaluate everything that we come in contact with or everything that we're uh, going to do or everything we're not going to do is, again, is this honor the Lord? Is this for the Lord? So with Paul, and with that in mind, Paul's saying, look, the, the stronger in the congregation, the stronger brothers are not to pass judgment upon the weaker, to realize that the same God who has grown us will also in faith grow them. He'll, he'll mature the weaker brother's faith along the way, just as he has strengthened our faith along the way. So again, for those of us who are more mature in the faith, the stronger in faith, we should never sit in judgment upon the weaker brother or the the brother who has an underdeveloped thought, if you will, on certain ideas and certain issues that govern the weaker brother's conduct. Because again, we're all going to give account to the Lord one day, and we all should be in the process and desire to live for the glory of God, realizing we're going to stand before him and we need to give a good account and we stand in front of him. Now, the next section here in chapter 14 is found starting in verse 13, and it goes all the way to the end of uh, this chapter, verse 23. And the major principle here is that we should be building each other up. We need to get along, right? We shouldn't be condemning the weaker brother, but we need to be building each other up. Uh, that, that should be the, the goal. We should be about edifying each other. So we need to make sure that we don't do anything to cause the weaker brother in the congregation to stumble. We need to make sure we don't grieve or hurt a, a weaker brother in any fashion spiritually, because if we do, then we're not walking according to the principle of love. And that's the, the command we're to follow, the principle of love. And, and love says, in essence, this. Love says, look, I know I may have a certain liberty to act in certain gray areas. Uh, those areas, again, the Bible doesn't explicitly uh, for, permit or, or uh, forbid. But for the sake of my weaker brother... Because it might cause him or her to stumble or fall, love says I'm not going to indulge in those things. I won't walk down the road that might be harmful to my brother or sister, but rather I'm going to choose to fully be devoted to them as my brother and sister in Christ. I'm going to choose to give up my preferences for them. I'm going to set aside my liberties for them. I'm going to choose not to insist on my rights. I want to make sure that I'm not acting in a way that may destroy the unity of the peace of the body of Christ found in the fellowship. Love says, I realize that God has been very merciful to me in Christ, therefore, how can I be any less to my brother or sister in the fellowship? Love says, I realize that Christ came and died for me, that he set aside the prerogatives of his glory, and he humbled himself, and he focused not on his own interests or pleasing himself, but on pleasing the Father who sent him and securing for me the forgiveness of my sin. Therefore, I want to love as Christ is loved. I want to love others as Christ has loved me. I can't focus on myself, but I have to focus on pleasing Christ through serving and loving others around me. I got to make sure that my liberties don't destroy for him for who Christ died. It's a tremendously important principle. And I gave a couple of references, I think, in drinking or not drinking or whatever the issue might be. Why do you do what you do? You may have certain liberties and maybe certain gray areas, but love says I need to be thinking about others more than I think about myself because that's the pattern of Christ. That's how he lived here in this world. So it's an absolute delusion, and I think that's the right word. It's an absolute delusion for us to think that we can claim that we love God, whom we have not seen, but then not practically love our brother who we 
have seen, or our sister who we have seen. Because if the love of Christ controls us, and it must, if we understand who we are as Christians, if we're devoted to each other in brotherly love, giving preference to each other, then the love of Christ will control us. Our love for our weaker brother will be demonstrated in what we do and what we do not do. It's really a proper understanding of the sacrificial death of Christ, the vicarious atoning death of Christ for us, that really undergirds, I think, and oversees this entire section. When we stop and think what Christ has done for us, it causes us to think how we should act and interact and treat others around us. Again, verse 15 says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So if the exercise of our liberties grieves or hurts the weaker brother in Christ, then we're not walking according to Christ like love. Somehow we've not only forgotten the fact that Christ died for us, we've forgotten that his love is a superabounding love. He also died for the weaker brother to the extent that he laid down his rights. And not only did he lay down his rights, he literally, Jesus literally laid down his life for that weaker brother that we're having a difficulty with in the body of Christ, that he might obtain eternal salvation for them. So Christ's actual demonstration of love far outweighs our theoretical or verbal expression of love. Uh, again, talk is cheap. There needs to be some action. And Christ says of himself in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one, what? Lay down his life. Right? Somehow the theoretical has to get to the reality. We've got to love our brothers and sisters around us in Christ as Christ has loved us. And again, how the fact that Christ has <clears throat> laid down his life for us has to impact <clears throat> the way we interact with those around us. Again, the strong and the strong in faith willingly setting aside or foregoing his or her liberties for the interests of those others in the body of Christ, because unity is such a big issue here for Paul, obviously through the Holy Spirit, and for the congregation. So again, so again, since the death of Christ was the price of redemption for all believers in the body, weak and strong. The death of Christ and the purpose, the, the person of Jesus Christ binds us all together and unites us into fellowship. It would be contradictory to behave in a pattern unlovingly since it was Christ's death that was the ultimate demonstration of love for us that united us all together, forgave our sins. It would be, un, it would be contradictory to, be, to behave in an unloving pattern towards others in the body of Christ and then still try to call ourselves Christians. The, the command here in the text not to destroy our with liberties for whom Christ die, died for it really, I think, undergirds the seriousness of the situation that the Holy Spirit places on this thing of unity in the body of Christ and our interaction with the weaker brother around us. Verse 16 says, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. And the word evil, I don't know if you knew this, but it's actually blaspheme, right? It's blasphemy, or we get our English word blaspheme, uh, blasphemy from. And to blaspheme is to commit an act that speaks against God and slanders God and, and insults God. So Paul says, look, as the stronger believer, we have to be careful not to abuse our liberty, to place an obstacle or a stumbling block in a weaker brother's walk or a weaker brother's path that might ruin or bring hardship to the spiritual life of that weaker brother. That, or that might allow someone to come in and speak blasphemy, not only against our liberty, but blasphemy against the persons of, of God and Christ. So we have to be careful how we live for our brothers and sisters, and we have to be careful how we live for the outside unbelieving world so that we don't do something that might distort the gospel itself by how we act or how we flaunt our, our liberties in the face of those who uh, don't agree with us. Or, uh, we, or if we find ourselves arguing about the non-essentials, then the world's going to uh, take a look at us and speak evil about uh, Christ and blaspheme Christ, blaspheme the gospel. And, and so we have to be very careful to make sure that, we're, that, that we don't think our rights are more important than our public demonstration of unity. It's a major issue. We've got to make sure that we don't allow our rights to be more important than the proclamation of the gospel of grace in the person of Jesus Christ to the unbelieving community all, all around us. Our rights, our liberty is so important that we're willing to risk uh, the unity and fracture the fellowship in order to claim them. Now, one of the things that I always remind people of here in this fellowship is we have a sweet fellowship, and we need to do everything we can to protect it, and I believe that. I, I believe that what God has done in Cornerstone Bible Church is a gift of His grace and kindness. There's usually lots of problems in fellowships. There's not many here, right? Because we do have a unity that is God-given unity, and we need to protect that always. 
Some of you familiar with the name Ray Stedman at all? No? Ray Stedman, who was once the, he's going to be the Lord, but he's once the pastor at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California. He tells a story that he heard one time, and it's a great story. It's about a church that got into an argument over whether or not they would have a Christmas tree in their Christmas program. Some thought it was fine. Others thought it was a pagan practice. So the church got so angry with each other that they actually broke out into a fist fight over the issue. One group would drag the tree out of the auditorium. The other group would drag the tree back into the auditorium. And they actually ended up suing each other in court. I have no doubt this is a true story. And the whole thing spread to the local newspapers, as you would expect, and the entire community read it. So I guess that you can conclude that the non-Christian would conclude that the gospel, according to the activities of this church, means whether or not you have a Christmas tree or don't have a Christmas tree in your in your Christmas program. And what else could they come, any kind of conclusion they could come to, right? Because they don't understand Obviously, by the actions of the uh, uh, of the people that are getting in the fistfight and suing each other over a Christmas tree in the auditorium, what does the unbelieving world look at? What does the unbelieving world see? What kind of conclusion do they come to based on the activities and the actions of the members of that church? So, when we fail to set aside our rights, or we fail choose to uh, failing uh, to choose not to exercise our liberty. Uh, um, uh, that could destroy the one for whom Christ died, and that could also uh, bring a reproach uh, on, on the gospel, a reproach on Christ uh, to, the, to the watching community uh, where God has placed uh, a certain fellowship. So again, the, Christ said the unbelieving world is going to know that we actually belong to him, not by how we dress, not by our doctrine, not by the fact we meet on Sunday, but he's, the unbelieving world is going to know us that we truly belong to Christ because of our what? Our love for each other, right? Our love for each other. So we have a responsibility, right, in whatever we're doing or exercising. We have a responsibility towards each other. And again, not just for the sake of each other, but we have a responsibility towards each other for the sake of the collective testimony uh, of the fellowship into the community for the sake of the gospel. Okay, verse 17. And as we bring the chapter to conclusion, there's going to be three things. I'll give them to you here, and then I'll go back over them. But three things. First, we're going to come to an understanding of what the kingdom of God is, because that's a phrase that appears in this text. So we're going to come to an understanding of what the kingdom of God is. Secondly, we're going to understand what it means to serve Christ and the results that come from that. And the third thing, we're going to see uh, that each of us are either in the process of building up or tearing down. We're either in the process of building up or tearing down by how we choose to live out the liberties we have in Christ. So verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. So let's begin by looking at that first little phrase there, the kingdom of God. What exactly is he talking about? What is the kingdom of God? It's a tremendously important question, one that has often not been understood throughout the history of the church. As many throughout the history of the church have tried to make God's kingdom into something that is not. Many in in the church, and I use that kind of in quotes, have uh, uh, attempted to turn God's kingdom into some kind of a temporal kingdom. What, what many have done because of uh, improper understanding of that is that through certain periods of history of the church, uh, uh, some, of the, some, uh, some of the periods of the history of the church have become some of the most oppressive and secular and corrupt and violent, even the most violent organization uh, perhaps the, the world has ever seen. And obviously I'm talking in the vast history of the church, meaning Roman Catholic rule, uh, so quote-unquote church, right? Under the Roman Catholic system, the, the, the kingdom of God became very oppressive on earth because it's not part of what's on earth in a, in a technical sense. So the kingdom of God really is not like the kingdom of men. Uh, the kingdom of men is going to pass away, and the kingdom of God is something that's forever, something that is eternal. And Paul's going to lay out what it looks like here. It's, it's tremendous. It's true that in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, it says the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, the Most High who lives forever. Uh, his dominion is everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Inhabitants of earth are accorded as nothing. He does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? <clears throat> but I think, well, that sense of the kingdom of God is real. But I think what's happening here in the context, <clears throat> and a lot of times I think of the New Testament, the kingdom of God really is used by Paul to speak of that which is a spiritual in a spiritual sense. So when we come to the kingdom of God from a spiritual sense, we need to understand the, the kingdom of God is that realm over which God rules. 
So we're not talking about the kingdom of God is here, Roman Catholics capture the church, and we're going to bring in the kingdom. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the kingdom of God being the realm over which God rules, the, the realm over which God alone is the sovereign Lord and King, the, the realm over which God is infinitely superior to all men and to everything else. So the kingdom of God, that's the realm that a believer belongs to. Remember Christ speaking to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot what? See the kingdom. Right? He can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and to be born, can he? And Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. That which is born of the spirit is of the spirit. Do not marvel that I say that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it and don't know where it comes from or, or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. He says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, uh, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these for which I forewarn you and have just forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not enter, here it is, the kingdom of God. Paul said the same thing to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So again, the kingdom of God in this sense is the realm to which believers belong and it's an eternal kingdom. It's a place where God rules and here it is. It's the place where God is the issue. God is the issue. It's the place where men and women have a relationship to God. Uh, again, the place where God rules, where God reigns. It's a place where men and women assent to the fact that God is sovereign, that he is the most important issue. So the kingdom of God is the place where redeemed individuals come and acknowledge God's rule and God's perfect character. So when we see the phraseology here that Paul is using, the kingdom of God... Listen, it has to have an effect of awakening our minds and calling our attention to realize the kingdom of God is primarily not a place of earthly or temporal matters. It's primarily not a place of temporal or earthly matters. The kingdom of God is not a place of personal preference or the place of the exercise of personal will. The kingdom of God is concerned about eternal things, about God's things, God's will, God's desires. So the kingdom of God is first and foremost about him, his glory, his honor, his will being done. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? On earth as it is in heaven. So in verse 17, when Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace, enjoying the Holy Spirit, he's saying, look, when these other issues, when these issues of food and drink and other issues like them become the chief concern in the fellowship or the chief concern in a believer's mind, it's very apparent that we have removed our interests from the interests of the kingdom of God. We are off track. When the issues of food and drink and other uh, such secondary issues become the primary issues, it's apparent that our thinking, our conduct has strayed away from the interests of the kingdom of God. When the love of Christ is no longer preeminent. When the fact that Christ has died for all, weak and strong, is no longer central in our vision. When we elevate secondary issues to the level of primary issues. When we elevate our liberties above love for others in the body of Christ, then we've lost sight of the reality of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I think there's actually an element in verse 17 of ridicule, excuse me, by Paul. I think he's chiding them for the trouble that they are causing, for the trouble that they have caused, that the exercise of the liberty has caused, both here in Rome and obviously in the church of Corinth, other places where these secondary issues become the primary issues, where where the issues of meat and days and etc. and so forth, uh, become the primary issue. I think there's not only a sense of ridicule, an element of ridicule, I think there's a certain amount of sarcasm in the statement. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. 
That's the way it always is when we lose perspective. When we get out of balance, when we be caught up in secondary issues, and when we're beating each other up and making our, our, uh, our church known to the local newspaper because of the Christmas tree. Right? When the secondary issues become the primary. When we're caught up into our own liberties, I want what I want. We're doing hymns, and we're only doing hymns. We're never doing anything contemporary or whatever the issue is, right? I mean, fellowships divide over those kind of issues. When secondary issues become primary issues, we're forgetting the primary issue. We're forgetting the purpose for which God has left us here in the world, that being the declaration of the gospel and the gathering of worshipers who are going to enter into eternal worship of Him, eternal worship of Christ with us in heaven. So unfortunately, there's a great tendency, I think, in a lot of Christian churches to miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, to be caught up into the minutiae, secondary issues over primary issues, and to forget the great issues of the, of the gospel. And that's always the way it is when you, when you move into the area of legalism, right? It's always the way it is when you move into legalism. Think about the legalistic uh, Pharisees. <clears throat> they were caught up into the minor, the, the minutiae. They were, they were caught up into the minor issues rather than the major issues. And because they were caught up into the minor issues, they actually missed what? Whom? They actually missed Christ. They missed the person of Christ. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 23, Christ says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weighted provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out an ant and swallow a camel. And that, that's what legalism does. Legalism gets you all bogged down into the minor things. The, again, the minutia traps you in the minutia. And elevate, uh, legalism elevates the trivial and blinds us to the essential. Because legalism feeds uh, our, our pride, our flesh. By thinking if we're doing this thing or not doing this thing, we, we must be better than all the other people in the room because look, look what I do. And that other person over there doesn't do that. Right? So legalism really, really blinds us to the essential and feeds the pride of our flesh. So when we enter into these kind of uh, wrong ideas, we enter into judgment upon others in the body of Christ, we establish ourselves as the standard, not the Word of God as the standard. We forget that the person uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and He alone is the one who saves, both the weak and the strong. It's not about doing or not doing, it's about the person of Jesus Christ. So again, the kingdom of God, Paul's trying to say, look, it's not about temporal things. Uh, The kingdom of God is not about doing or not doing. The kingdom of God, again, is not even about us trying harder. But the kingdom of God is the second part. Uh, The kingdom of God is about the second part of the verse. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's somewhat of a debate here when you come to this portion of of the text with the commentators and how to properly understand the words righteousness, peace, and joy. Some see it as qualities given to us in God's progressive work of salvation in our lives. Others see them as moral qualities to be developed within the Christian life. Now, I don't personally see a need to be a, to have a dichotomy here, an either-or dichotomy uh, in this uh, situation. I think the apostle is saying that these indeed, these are the expressions of the work of God in your life, and they lead to an outflowing or working, outworking of certain qualities in our life that you see. So I kind of see it as an and both. This is, what, this is the result of uh, God in you. So what is the kingdom of God? It's not about, it's not about temporal it's not about legalism. It's not about insisting on your day or your, or your f- food or drink or whatever, my liberty, my freedom. But rather, when we understand the kingdom of God properly, we understand it's about righteousness. It's about righteousness. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about the righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. The righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ has won for us, W-O-N, won for us. Because we don't have any righteousness of our own. Any righteousness we have is borrowed Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And it's Jesus Christ's righteousness that comes to us as a gift by grace alone through faith alone, not by works. Romans 4.4, 4, now to the one who works his wage is not reckoned as favor, but what is due him. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him and justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ given to us that, that should and really must 
result in righteousness practically lived out in our daily lives. Right? If we're in Christ and we're following him, the righteousness that has been given to us by Christ should and must result in righteous activities in our life on a practical level. It's much more important for us to demonstrate righteousness than it is to insist on having a Christmas tree in the auditorium during the Christmas celebration, right? It's much more important for us to demonstrate righteousness than it is to press or exercise our liberty as our freedoms in Christ. Romans 4 verse 25 says, He was delivered up because of our transgression, was raised up because of our justification. Chapter 5 verse 1 of Romans says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace is the second attribute found here in the kingdom of God. Peace. Uh, Again, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace. The kind of peace that Paul's talking about in chapter 5 verse 1 is objective peace. And objective peace is a result of Christ's work for us. It's God's justification of us because he's accepted us because of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. Christ has accepted the, or God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ in total. He's been propitiated. Now we have peace with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace. Again, objective peace with God through the person of Christ. So that objective peace, knowing that we have been forgiven, knowing that our sin has been fully and finally dealt with in Christ, must result in changed life. It must result in a changed life. It must result, the righteousness given to us must result in a life lived unto righteousness, a righteous life. But that subjective peace that God gives us also has to transform and change our life and all that we do. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing. I'll stop for a moment and give you a chance to think about what you might think that might mean in the Greek text. Right? It means be anxious for what? Nothing. Listen. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7 And here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Didn't I say this morning we need to believe what the Bible says and we need to obey what the Bible says? Did I say that? And I I say this graciously, but some of you lack subjective peace because you're disobedient. You're anxious about everything. And you're not praying as you should. Therefore, your hearts and your minds are not guarded. That objective peace that God has won for us through Christ, that cessation of hostilities that is granted to you because of the intercessory work of Christ results in personal peace and tranquility of life. I, I said it this morning. You don't have to worry about what's coming next. Go to bed. Sleep. The sovereign of the universe has it all under control. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need you to worry or be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you want personal peace, it's there for you. It's been won by Christ. Objective peace and then subjective peace. Won by Christ. So that reality... That peace that God has given, objective peace that God has given in Christ, should and again must result in personal peace, personal happiness, tranquility of life. And again, that demonstration of peace has to be practically lived out, practically demonstrated, practically experienced. As again, we set aside our liberties and preserve the peace and the unity in the body of Christ. Devoted to each other in brotherly love, giving preference to each other, being more concerned about the other person's uh, peace than your own. So what is the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but here it is, righteousness and peace, third component, joy in the Holy Spirit, joy in the Holy Spirit. So joy is a byproduct of the righteousness of Christ. It's the result of objective peace with God, and it's evidence of the fact that God is indeed in us because peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22, fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, right, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. And joy here is a sign of God's presence. 
It's a sign of his kingdom. And, and, and it's, a, and it's dis, a, a joy distinguished from any kind of joy which is temporary, from kind of whatever kind of satisfaction we get from any kind of selfish desires. It's the kind of joy that God alone brings through the righteousness found in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we lose our way or lose our balance, however you want to phrase it, and secondary issues become primary, when the issues of temporal things such as trees in the sanctuary or food or drink, when those become the chief concern, it just proves how far off we have been removed from the interests of God and his kingdom. We've got our focus on the wrong thing. Our conduct, our thinking has, has, has strayed because our interests are not in the interests of God and his kingdom, it's on self. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But we've been forgiven by Christ. We've been given, forgiven by God through the person of Jesus Christ. And because God, again, has shown us so much mercy through the person of Jesus Christ, uh, that should allow us, again, to deal in righteousness. That should allow us to walk in righteousness. That should allow us to deal in a manner that is kind to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we've been shown much grace and mercy by God through the person of Jesus Christ. We've experienced peace, so that should allow us to have peace in our life and peace with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that we might not agree on on every issue and should have a desire to protect the unity of the peace that God has given to us. And again, it should ultimately result in joy because God has saved us. I mean, joy should be the the issue, uh, the predominant, uh, one of the predominant manifestations of life in Christ. We're, we're going we're gonna to enter into the joy of his presence, right? And God's presence is joy forever. And so if that's the way it's going to be in heaven when we get there, that should be somewhat of the experience of the individual in the body of Christ and the collective body of Christ as a whole while we're here. Some of that joy that marks our salvation as members of the body should be part of our own personal life and, again, part of the fellowship, the life of the fellowship. Joy. Even to the unbelieving world around us. Right? I mean, if we're if the if the the kingdom of God is righteousness uh, is not the eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, you have to stop and ask yourself: How many Christians have you met that are really joyful? And how is it that many people who call themselves Christians often look all the time like they just lost their best friend or their dog got run over? Now, I guess depending on whether you like your dog or not, <clears throat> it's how you deal with that issue, right? But you understand what I'm saying. There's a lot of um, people who call themselves believers that aren't very uh, happy ever. Full of sadness, full of sorrow, anxious, forlorn. Why is that? And God has given us peace through the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, we as believers should be the most optimistic people in the entire planet because we know where it's all headed. Everything is headed towards the exaltation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in time and then for all eternity. We don't have to be anxious about anything. We're called to, to, in fact, not be. The knowledge of the fact that Christ has saved you, the knowledge of the fact that Christ, that God has saved you and been merciful to you, boy, you know, if that can't get you excited, I don't know what in the world does. If that doesn't change the way you approach life and everything in your life, if the focus of your life for why you do whatever it is you don't or do or don't do, if the focus of your life is not for God's glory and Christ's honor, there's a major problem going on. So again, if you're in the kingdom of God, you've been marvelously changed, transformed, saved. It should be evident by how we conduct our lives together and it should be evident on how we conduct our life just in general in the world. Because this is how we serve Christ, verse 18. For he who... who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. For he who in this way serves Christ. That means the man who serves Christ with a kind of intentionality and non-judgmental attitude that Paul's been encouraging here all along since the beginning of the chapter uh, is going to be promoting a right way of thinking, a right way of acting as a Christian. The, the, man, the man who understands that he's truly been forgiven, truly justified by God, that he's been reconciled to God, has that uh, objective peace which brings subjective peace. Uh, the man who uh, understands that he's received the righteousness of Christ. It's not about him doing or trying harder. It's about Christ. He has received the person of the Holy Spirit as a gift of God's kindness. Therefore, there's joy within that man. 
And that man or that woman realizes that all their blessings are found in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, that person, that individual, is determined by these facts to be well-pleasing. Well-pleasing or acceptable to God. The kingdom of God is not eating or drinking or any other kind of secondary uh, temporal matters, not essential temporal matters, but righteousness and peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God. So again, the one who realizes what God has done for him in Christ lives accordingly. He serves Christ that way. When he does that, he finds himself acceptable to God. Again, when that person understands what God has done for them, he's not caught up in the secondary issues, but rather he's caught up in the primary issues. Again, he realizes that eating or drinking or trees in the auditorium really aren't essential, nor any other vast number of other kind of issues that fall into those categories that people divide over in, in, in churches. But the man who is acceptable to God, who serves Christ, is the man who realizes what God has done for him in Christ, and he's all about explaining the kingdom of God to everyone else who doesn't know God. Right? Not, not in a manner that is consumed with his liberties. Not, not in a manner that's consumed or concerned with temporal things like don't go to a movie, don't drink, don't smoke, don't play cards. Don't. They're not interested in those kind of things. He's about living and declaring the kingdom of God. Therefore, he's interested in declaring and pointing people to the person of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the primary issue. The righteousness of Christ given to those who repent and place their faith in Christ, given as a free gift. That's what somebody who's, who's uh, acceptable to God, who's serving Christ and acceptable to God, that's his focus. He wants, make, he wants to, to make Christ known to other people. He wants to make known again the kingdom of God is peace. It's objective peace with God. Again, achieved only by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. He wants to make known to other people that they understand that those here in the kingdom experience joy, unlike any other person on the planet. Because again, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to those who repent and place their faith in Christ because of God's work of regeneration. So the person who's serving Christ rightly, the person who's acceptable to God, is the person who doesn't get caught up into secondary issues. He's not one who gets caught up into his own liberties. He's not one who gets caught up into the false judgmentalism of legalism. But rather, he's the one who serves Christ rightly. He's the one who understands the kingdom of God properly. The one who's trying to live in a real, vital, living, Christ-centered faith. He's trying to live a real, vital, living Christ-centered faith. Everything comes to the grid of how does this affect the person of Jesus Christ? How does this make Christ look? What's the reason? What's the goal? What's the motivation? What does this do? Am I glorifying Christ by doing this thing or not doing this other thing? Not himself. So again, this kind of person is always pointing others to Christ, to the person of Christ, the one who saved his own soul, the one who's shown him such great mercy and grace, the one who loved him even while he was yet a sinner, he was completely taken over, forever transformed by the person of Jesus Christ in his life. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace, enjoying the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable, or again, well-pleasing to God. I think you have to stop and realize the fact that this man Saul, before he had a personal revelation of the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus would have been meticulous about all of these rules, all of the minutia, keeping this thing and this other thing and a great number of man-made rules. I mean, again, uh, God gives Moses 10, and by the time you get to the, the time of Paul here, they got the Pharisees got 600, and everybody's trying to keep these minutia uh, to, down to the to that minute, minute point, all of these different rules. And so in keeping the rules as a Pharisee, Paul thought he was pleasing to God. But in the reality, he wasn't pleasing to God. And all these rules he was trying to keep wasn't and kept keeping him even closer to God. It was actually removing him further away from the person of God because he didn't know Christ. But he didn't know God because he'd rejected Christ. He didn't understand the perfect holiness of God. He didn't understand the perfect righteousness of God. Again, that's another reason why, why legalism is such a fallacy because it makes us stand in a place where we think we have achieved something by what we do or what we don't do. And the issue is always Christ. So as a Pharisee, Paul's trying to, Saul of Tarsus, he's trying to work his way to, to God. He, he, he's trying to think that his human effort, his legalism, 
is going to allow him to get salvation. Then he meets Christ and now he's converted and he realizes all those things he once did, all those great things he once was, is nothing but rubbish. And the word scubalon, you can look it up and see what it means. It actually means excrement. All those things he was doing by human effort, his legalism was keeping him away from the salvation that he desperately needed. That again is found by grace alone. Through faith alone, the person of Jesus Christ alone. So Saul of Tarsus was meticulous about all the minor things, but he was blind to the essential. It was legalism that kept him separated from God, kept him separated from Christ until Christ revealed himself graciously to him. And again, that's what legalism does to every man. It keeps them far away from God, far away from the salvation that's found by grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Again, when Saul of Tarsus meets uh, uh, the risen Savior, he becomes completely, thoroughly different. When he finds Christ, he realizes that what he had been trying to do on his own effort, only Christ could do. And probably more appropriate than saying when he found Christ, when Christ found him, (laughs) when Christ came looking for him, then Paul found the righteousness that he desperately needed. Then he found the peace that he desired to have that legalism and keeping all the rules could never provide for him. Then he found joy that he was looking for because then he had the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit and that's one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. And then he began to serve Christ immediately. Acknowledge who, acknowledging who Christ is and he became well-pleasing to God. And then his life was truly liberated. From, from that time forward, when we met the person of Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, from that time forward, he was finally free. Free from the bondage of legalism. Free from the condemnation of the law. Free as a redeemed, saved sinner. Free to enjoy God. Free to enjoy God's mercy. Free to enjoy God's grace to the person of Jesus Christ. Now he was, for the first time in his life, not only free, but he was alive to live a life truly pleasing to God. That's why he would never go back to legalism. And I think that's why he is so set here on the Romans' understanding that they cannot be weaker towards, uh, 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 they, they can't be judgmental towards a weaker brother. I think that's why he's spending so much time on this one issue. Because he knows the failure of the trap of going back to these rules and regulations and saying, look how much better I am than you are. He, he knows that it's a fallacy. So he was insistent. But they would understand that the kingdom of God is not about peripheral issues. The kingdom of God is about the person of Jesus Christ and him alone, the one who died for them. Therefore, if they understood that truth, instead of judging other Christians, they'd be quick to acknowledge the fact of God's grace in their own life. They would demonstrate the righteousness that God had given them through the person of Jesus Christ and the peace and the joy that they have in the person of the Holy Spirit. So they would be quickly encouraging each, other's around, each other around them and they'd be quickly encouraging others to come to the salvation that he found in the person of Jesus Christ. He would be encouraging, or this person would be encouraging uh, others to come to the place where they find mercy rather than worrying about trees in the sanctuary or other temporal kinds of issues. Again, verse 18, for he in this way serves Christ and is acceptable to God and approved by men. This is an interesting word. Uh, 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 it means to be accepted approved or accepted and what's interesting about this word it was used for coin money it's a word that was used in reference to coin money when money started to be used to, to trade uh, the metal was heated obviously silver or something like that gold into a liquid and poured into a mold and then allowed to cool but the metal was soft if it's pure right so it's not mixed because it's not mixed with alloys so people, what they would do is they would take a little pocket knife or something like that, and they whittle down the edges of the shavings and, and make little shavings, right? Cut it down a little bit smaller and smaller. And over time, they'd collect enough of the shavings to make equivalent of a new coin. Have you ever noticed you pull out a quarter in, in your pocket? In the old days, those used to be like silver. And on the edges of the, on the, edge of the, uh, of the coin, it's, it's uh, slotted. It's got a ridge. Why is that? Because, again, that's very issue. In the olden days, when it was silver, people would take a knife and just start cutting until, you know, it's kind of like, 
when you're getting gold dust out of somebody else's bag uh, to pay for something, you know, you just kind of do that kind of thing. And after a while, you know, you're doing that kind of thing. And, you know, if you're, if you're working at Kroger's and you're exchanging gold and you're licking your fingers, everybody, every time somebody comes and brings your gold bag in, you're going to have a, quite a collection, the same kind of thing, right? So over a period of time, the, the coin would be whittled down and the merchants wouldn't accept it, right? Whittled the, the edges got cut off. They would, it was regarded as light money. So instead of dakamas, approved or accepted, it was adakamas, disapproved. So those who never, neither gave nor received light money, that man was said to be dakamas. He was approved. That just means he was an honest man, uh, especially when it comes to the issue of his coinage. So to be acceptable to God or well-pleasing to God or approved and approved by men means that the world recognizes us, here's the word, to be a full weight, right? That, that quarter, that half dollar, whatever, is full weight. The edges haven't been cut off. That just means that that person is genuine. So people of faith uh, want to be a full weight. They want to be a pleasing to God and they want to be approved by men. They want to be recognized by the world as those who actually belong to Christ. They want to be recognized that they aren't fake, they're not phony. They're indeed the genuine article. We're living our lives in a manner that demonstrates the fact that there's something different about us because there's someone different in us. The world needs to see the reality of what they don't know by their own experience because they don't know Christ. So again, we should be living our life in the light of the truth found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Christ says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Right? There should be something radically different about the genuine believer, and there is. Because of the person of the Holy Spirit. So we live in, we're living our lives in light of the fact of the mercy of God in our life. And we, we live our lives in light of the fact, going back all the way to chapter 12, that we presented our lives, our bodies to him as living and holy sacrifices so that the world may know that we belong to him. That Christ has actually come into our life and changed it. We serve him. We want to be acceptable to God. We want to be approved by men. That means Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, we do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we may prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation amongst whom you appear as lights in the world, right? Why would we complain about anything if our Heavenly Father is in charge of everything and in control of all things and loves us infinitely? He's proved that by sending Christ. Why would we be those people who would be grumbling and disputing? That's part of the world, right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may demonstrate, you may prove yourself to be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What do you expect the people around us to do other than what they're doing? Why is the world catching you off guard by how they act, how they treat each other, how they treat you? It's a wicked and perverse generation. But he says we are to appear as what? Lights. Lights in a dark world. So to be approved by... Uh, to serve Christ, to be acceptable to God, to be approved by men, means that we remember first and foremost as believers we're actually slaves of Christ. And, and as slaves of Christ, we, we have no rights. We have no preferences. We only have a deep-seated desire to be pleasing to the one who saved our soul. Verse 7 of chapter 14 says, "Do uh, for one, uh, not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. So again, we have to stop judging each other. We've got to stop uh, determining that we don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. We're all belong to Christ, weak or strong. We've got to make sure that we don't violate our conscience or the conscience of another brother who's weaker in a certain area. Make sure we do the very best we can to make sure that we're not hurting another brother and sister in Christ because of liberties that we have or we perceive that we have uh, uh, that are spelled out expressly or, uh, again, these certain gray areas. And we have to determine that we're going to walk in love. We're, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. We're gonna, if we're going to live, we live not for ourselves. We live for him who died for us. So, again, how we approach every area in life, uh, again, is seen through the grid of our commitment to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, realizing that the kingdom of God is not about temporal issues. It's about Christ. It's about the righteousness of Christ. It's about God's peace. It's about God's joy found in the Holy Spirit. It's about serving Christ. It's about living our lives in an acceptable manner uh, uh, before God, then approved by men, that we are full weight. We're actually who we say we are. 
Therefore, we're going to determine not to tear down, but rather we're going to be determined to build each other up in the kingdom of God. Verse 19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and building up of one another. Verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. So let us pursue the things that make for peace in the building up of, uh, of uh, one another. The, the word pursue means press hard after or with earnestness, with diligence follow. It's interesting. The word is a lot of times in the New Testament actually translated persecute. But, but here it's used in the idea of going after an objective or obtaining a desire like running a race. So, so the idea here is let us pursue, let us exert with every fiber of our being uh, the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. That's kind of the idea. So you have to ask, I guess, the question, what are the things he's talking about? What are the things or these, these things? What are the things that make up peace? What are the things that make uh, unity in the, in, in the body that build each other up, uh, that lead to mutual edification? In, in the context, I think it has to be those things he's already been talking about. He's already clearly de- delineated that cause us or allow us to be acceptable to one another. Right? Giving up our rights so that we don't cause a weaker brother to stumble in their spiritual walk. Not judging our brother in those areas where the Bible doesn't speak clearly on or where the Bible is silent. Realizing the fact that we all weak or strong, we all have a, a master whom we serve. It's God alone and God alone is the judge. We're all going to stand before him and give an account of our lives, of how we've lived before him. I think these things are, are, are walking in humility. It's living in, in Christ-like love and compassion towards each other. It's about seeking the needs of others first before, of, before or instead of seeking our own needs. It's about standing in amazement of God's mercy in your own life. It's about refusing to fight over or argue over those things that are not important or non-consequential intentionally setting your mind on Christ and on those things, those things above and the things of the kingdom of heaven. It's about intentionally drawing men and women's attention to the eternal person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's what those things are. And these things, in these things we're either building up or we're tearing down. And the admonition here is to make sure that we're, we're building up. Building up one another, right? So then let us pursue those things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Now, do not tear down is a present imperative. So it's the command of God. And it could even be translated because it's present imperative. Stop tearing down. So perhaps, again, Paul is spending so much time here because there's an issue going on here. And he's telling these believers to cease the destructive action that they're already a part of that's already going on here in the church of Rome. Stop tearing down. Stop tearing down the, the uh, weaker brother. Stop despising the weaker brother. Give up your liberty. Don't do anything that would cause a weaker brother to stumble. Don't do anything that would cause outsiders to blaspheme, to speak evil of the gospel of Christ. I think uh, some of your translations may say this, uh, don't tear down and it's uh, um, translated with the word destroy. And I think some of the translations say that. And that's what it means. Cataluo, utterly destroy, overthrow completely. So it's a very vivid picture of what failing to obey Paul's warning here in the chapter can do to another brother or sister in Christ. It can destroy them. And again, that's why the issue is so uh, monumental to Paul. That's why he's spending so much time on it. He, he wants us to realize how serious an issue unity is, peace is in the body of Christ. Again, 36 verses. 36 verses on this one issue. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. So what does that mean, the work of God? I think in the context it has to be a reference to just the believers. The work of God is the believer. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared for and we should walk in. So Paul is just talking about those things, pursuing those things that make for peace and the building up of one another in the body of Christ. And now he's saying in the imperative mood, again, stop tearing down the work of God. Stop tearing down each other. Stop tearing down one another. 
Stop destroying the work of God, God's people, for the sake of things that are non-essential. Again, either eating or not eating, or days to observe or not to observe. So he's saying, look, the, the stronger believer in the fellowship really has the, the responsibility in building up, not tearing down. Building up the work of God for the, for, for the sake of, uh, of the kingdom. I mean, how could we tear down that person from who Christ has given his life for? How, how could we tear down the person for whom Christ has given his very life? This brother and sister, how could we do anything that would destroy the work of God and another brother or sister in Christ? And the answer is we can't, we shouldn't, we must not. Doesn't mean people in fellowships don't do that all the time, but we should have no part of that. Rather, we're to pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Verse 20 continues, All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So again, Paul's not speaking about things that are expressly uh, unholy or sinful. He's talking about discretionary liberties, uh, things that are indeed clean in the Lord, or all things indeed are clean in the Lord. Uh, the danger again arises when we exercise selfishly or carelessly our liberties. Then those things that are good may become evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Paul says, therefore, in verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. Again, right, we understand the context. You can eat meat, sacrifice idols, it's not a big deal. But if it's an offense to your brother, then don't do it. You have liberty to drink wine, but if it's an offense to your brother, don't do it. Don't do anything that makes your brother stumble. Set aside your personal liberties. Consider the, spell, the spiritual welfare of your brother or sister in Christ. And it's good for you to do that. It's good for you to do that thing rather than to cause a brother or sister to stumble or to be torn down by giving up your liberty, by giving up your legitimate right. It's a very small price to pay for the care of somebody else who's weak in the body of Christ. Again, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So if Jesus is about building up his church, we as his followers must be about what? Building up his church, right? Building up those in the body of Christ. Building up the corporate body of believers, encouraging believers, each and every individual Christian, helping them to grow spiritually. So we have to exercise our liberty with great care and great caution, keeping a right perspective. And again, remembering that the purpose of the kingdom, again, is not about flaunting liberties in some kind of careless fashion. It's not about temporal things, but it's about the eternal. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. Verse 22 says, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself on what he approves. He's saying, look, concerning secondary issues, as long as you're not violated your own conscience, you have faith before God that what you're doing is okay or the right thing to do. You have the freedom and the liberty, again, uh, to exercise that in Christ. Uh, you can keep your conviction between you, you and God and not flaunt it before the weaker brother uh, and, and uh, weaken uh, uh, his faith. Or, or uh, you can walk in the freedom of the liberty that God has given to you and granted to you in Christ. Just being cautious in how you deal with the other person. Verse 23 says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. He's saying, look, you don't want to violate your conscience, because if you violate your conscience, if you're not sure you should do this thing or not do this other thing, then just don't do it. Don't be involved in the secondary issues, such as eating and drinking days, etc. and so forth. Because the issue may be in the minds of others, one of liberty and freedom, but not so in yours for whatever reason. It's kind of like if you get up in the morning and come to church and you have to ask your wife if your shirt is dirty, the answer is what? Your shirt's dirty, right? It's a pretty simple principle, right? If it might be, it is. And it's kind of the way that with liberties in Christ, right? It may be fine, but if you think it's not, then it's not. That's just what he's saying. We should never have any kind of doubt about what we do. Everything we do should come from faith. Everything we should do, we should come with a sense of this is the right thing to do before God. It's fine with him. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So again, we just make sure we don't violate our conscience. We have a settled conviction before God what is the right thing to do. If we find ourselves in a position where we're not sure, then just don't do it. Don't violate your conscience because that for you is sin. Right? 
Um, Spurgeon once said this. He says, do nothing about which you have a need to ask a question, but be quite sure about it or leave it alone. Whatever you cannot do with confidence that you are doing right is sin to you. Though this deed may be right to other people, if you have any doubt about it yourself, it's evil to you. Again, it's just a principle of not violating your conscience, right? To him who doubts, it is uh, condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So again, 36 uh, verses, a whole lot of uh, uh, discussion over one issue. We just need to protect the unity of the body of Christ. It's a gift. It's a great gift. And we need to be about building up the body of Christ, not tearing it down. Again, there may be a variety of different issues that believers, genuine believers, have varying opinions on. And we just have to use wisdom on, are these secondary issues or primary issues? Uh, Again, for the secondary issue, for the sake of the weaker brother, we should just probably set them aside and pursue unity because that's a higher thing. So if if you want a Christmas tree in the the auditorium, I'll help you. I'll help you drag one in. But let's get a really big one, right? (laughs) One that goes to the peak so we can have something to talk about, right? Versus something to fight over. All right? The the desire, the importance of unity in the body of Christ. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your kindness to us. We're thankful for this important uh, reminder. Many verses, again, on this one issue of unity the danger to unity, failing to build each other up in the body of Christ. So help us to think about others more than we think about ourselves because that's what Christ did. That's the example that we have to follow. He thought nothing of himself and came and set aside the prerogatives of deity, put on humanity and suffered and died in our place. Therefore, every person in the body of Christ is valuable to him, to you. And may we have that same kind of value for them, our dear brothers and sisters. We thank you, Lord, for the unity we have in this fellowship. I talk to people often about what you've done here, and it's just a great grace of of your kindness. But help us to maintain that. Help us to be mindful. Help us to take secondary issues and set them aside and focus on the primary issues. And help us to focus on a grace given to us and help us to be ambassadors of that grace and mercy to others around you, around us who don't know you, that they too might bow the knee to you in time because you're worthy of that worship. Thank you for your word and thank you for our worship today before you in Christ's name. Amen.